demolishing strongholds, all right, today, demolishing strongholds. And we're about to see where the people of God are going to occupy the promised land. In order to do that, they're going to have to tear down the stronghold, and one of the primary strongholds is Jericho. This is only one of a a number that are coming. There are numerous strongholds in the land, and so this is the first encounter of the first stronghold in the promised land. The people of God are in Gilgal. They have been encamped there now for a little while, and we have already witnessed how in all of the chapters that we've come up to, once they've crossed over the dry land through the Jericho, uh, through the Jericho, through the, the Jordan on dry land, they've settled in Gilgal, and now Joshua is looking, and so are the people of God, at this incredible, massive structure, much like uh, the, uh, the football stadium that I saw up in Lincoln, Nebraska. Just uh, I, I happened to stay in a hotel downtown, and I could see uh, the Nebraska Stadium, football stadium, uh, from our hotel. It's a massive structure, and I was reading this this week, and I thought, I thought about, you know, sometimes when you're standing there, look at those structures, they just seem humongous, and the people of God were just a couple of miles from Jericho, and they could see it. This was a fortified city. We learned that when uh, Moses sent the spies into the promised land, they saw Jericho and came back and said, no way, it's not going to happen. We are, we are ants compared to those giants. We're just not going to be able to demolish that stronghold. They lost their faith and wandered the wilderness for 40 years. Now here they are in Gilgal on the opposite side, on the promised land side, where God has finally brought them, and they are now faced with the first stronghold, a giant of a stronghold, probably one of the largest, most fortified cities that they'll ever encounter as they're trying to possess that which God had promised. It's called Jericho. We've all sang the song when we were children. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Come on. Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And the walls came down and You're supposed to do that. You know what I'm saying? It's been a long time since you've been in children's Sunday school, hasn't it? And so we're going to talk about strongholds. Now, more than likely, let's, let, let's relate this to today. You have a stronghold that exists in your life right now. It's a character flaw. It's a thought process. It's an intellectual deficiency. It's a besetting sin. It's an emotion that's there that shouldn't be there. It's a troubled past. It could be a number, a myriad of things. It's as vast and as different as the individuals that are in this room. Can you identify your stronghold? It's a stronghold is simply something in which the enemy has had a heyday in your life, and they have been in that place in your life for quite some time. They've dug a pretty firm footing. They have built a solid foundation. They have built a structure, and now it's almost impossible for you to remove it from your life. There's a habit that you have tried and tried and tried to overcome, but you just can't overcome it. There's a character flaw in your life that you just can't defeat. There's a sin that is so besetting and it's so troubling. It's been in your life for decades, and you've not been able to have victory over that sin. Those are the strongholds that exist. It could be as simple as gossip and as destructive as pornography. But they're strongholds. How do you overcome those? Well, Joshua and the people of God were faced with this incredible stronghold called Jericho. Let's look at how they overcame it and let's see how we can overcome our strongholds. First of all, you take a look at the text. We are before the battle, before you engage the stronghold, before you attack the stronghold, you need to assume a position of confidence. It's important that we assume a position of confidence. 
God wanted Joshua and the people of God to confront this stronghold with a confidence in which they knew that even before they went into the battle, that the stronghold was going to be coming down and that they would be victorious. You take a look at that, and we get that from the text in verse 1. Let's take a look at it. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. In this text, verses 1, 2, and 3, we see, first of all, the cultural condition of Jericho. It's a culture of fear. They have already conceded defeat. They're operating now in a way that normally they would have never operated. They were a mega metroplex, a powerful, large contingency. They had built this fortified city, and we see now that they had barricaded the doors and they had locked the windows and no one was coming out and no one was coming in. No one was allowed out and no one was allowed in. They were afraid that if anybody left, they would go and tell what was going on in Jericho. And if anybody came in, it might be some of the enemy trying to invade from the inside out. They were a fortified city that was locked up. They were driven by fear and they knew as they saw the people of God and they understood how they had crossed the river on dry land, the God that they served and the God that was on their side and they were literally already conceding defeat even before the first arrow was launched. The culture was, was a, a horrific culture to be a part of if you were a part of the, the inhabitants of Jericho. And as Joshua is surveying the city of Jericho on the outer skirts of the, the encampment there of the people of God there in Gilgal. Remember we saw in the last part of chapter 5 where the, the commander of the host of the Lord's army comes to Joshua. I mean he's, he's surveying the city, he's looking at the city and he's questioning how in the world are we going to overcome this incredible obstacle, this this stronghold that's in our path that's robbing us of the promises and the blessing of God. I don't see it. I can't envision it. I don't understand it. How are we going to overcome it? We don't have the armament. We don't have the weaponry that can catapult us over such a wall. We don't have any kind of structure that would knock this wall down. Remember, all they had was arrows, probably spears, and that was about it, some swords. They had a formidable army, but it was just swords, spears, and arrows. And there was no way in the world that this wall was going to come down with those kind of armaments. It was just impossible. And we see in Joshua 5 that his head was lowered and he was reflecting because he had not gotten a word from the Lord when all of a sudden the commander of the Lord comes to him. And we see in chapter 6 exactly why this commander of the host of the Lord's army appears. He comes to give Joshua the strategy. Now, it's not a normal strategy that you and I might have come up with if we were in a committee meeting. It's a strategy that I'm sure sort of took Joshua back a little bit. But before he gives him the strategy, he says to him, I want to give you a commitment, Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. I have already made it a reality. I want you to operate now as you advance toward this obstacle, toward this stronghold, to operate from a position of victory, not defeat. See yourself, before you even start the battle, as someone who has already won the war. How would you like to go to a football game? And know that even before the game started and the whistle blew, you already won 100 to 1 or 100 to nothing. How would you play the game? Well, I'd have fun and be kind of cocky. I hope you wouldn't because the battle belongs to the Lord and Joshua was not about to do that. He was about to give it his all. 
But he understood what God wanted him to know in advance. I've already given Jericho into your hands. It's already in your possession. When you have something in your hand, it already belongs to you. And he's saying, Joshua, the victory already belongs to you. Now here's the strategy. Are you ready for it? Yeah, I'm ready, Lord. Give it to me. Well, I want you to, I want you to take, you know, take some guys and I want you to march around the city one day. Don't do anything. Just march around at one time and come back to camp. Do it again on the second day, do it again on the third day, on the fourth day, on the fifth day, and the sixth day, and on the seventh day, march around it seven times, blow the trumpet, shout the sound, and the walls will come tumbling down. And Joshua said, what was that again, Lord? Uh, I got my iPad here, and I didn't quite get that all that. Could you repeat that again, please? Uh, I, I ran out of lead in my pencil here, and I, I need to make sure I get all this down, because I'm not quite fully cognizant of what I seem to understand that you're saying is a strategy to bring this city down. Now, now God, I, I know that uh, you were miraculous in stopping the flow of the river of Jordan and we dropped across on dry land, but, but to have walls just come tumbling down because some people shout and all of a sudden, is that what you said? Yes, son, that's what I said. Okay, Lord. And notice the confidence of Joshua in the next verse, verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. He said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. So he called the priests and he commanded the, the, the soldiers, the warriors, to get ready. And it took a couple of days for them to, to get everything ready. And... Uh, but Joshua, when he, when he had received the instructions from the Lord, he had incredible confidence that God told him exactly what was to be done and gave him the strategy, and he had complete confidence in the strategies of God. Why? Because he knew how God operated. And you see, he knew that God could do the impossible. Even if he could stop some water from flowing in an overflowing river and they could walk across on dry land, it was not much faith, a, a big step of faith to believe, okay, he can make the walls come tumbling down. And I would probably not have done it this way, Lord, it would been easier for you to do something else, but this is the way you want to do it, and you want us to exercise faith and believe in you, I get it, and so that's the confidence that they had, and he, he went out and he, he called the priests and he commanded the soldiers, get ready. I wonder if you operate from a place of victory, or do you operate from a place of defeat when you're confronted by the enemy and the strongholds in your own life? I think most of us are probably like whipped puppy dogs. We're confronted with the giants or the obstacles and strongholds in our lives and we don't operate from a position of confidence. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, take your Bible and turn there. We're going to look at scripture here just very quickly this morning, so get your Bible ready. <clears throat> I want to point out how we are to operate from confidence in the New Testament. Because those of us in Christ can relate to this because we operate from a position of confidence, not cowardice. And as we face the enemy, we face the enemy because the enemy is already a defeated foe. And because Christ did what he did, he lived his life, he died the death that he died, a vicarious death on the cross. And because he rose from the dead and defeated Satan and sin once and forever, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in him operate from a position of confidence, not cowardice. Because the victory is already ours. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, say it with me. 
Who can be against us? Who can be against us? You skip down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than what? We are more than what? Conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is there that can defeat us? Nothing. So why isn't then are we not operating from a position of confidence rather than a position of cowardice? I know there are times when he seems like a roaring lion and that he may devour whomever he may devour, and sometimes we may think that he's going to devour us, but I've read the final chapter of the book, and I know who wins in the long run. Our Jesus has already won the victory for us, and if we are in Christ, we operate from a position of confidence, and we are already victorious. I don't care what the enemy has thrown in your path, what kind of obstacle, what a stronghold, whatever barrier, whatever temptation, whatever character, whatever it is that's there, you need to confront that from a position of confidence as if it was already defeated in Christ. And not buy into the satanic lie or the, the culture that's around us that says, ah, don't worry about that, or I ah, just operate from a position of defeat rather than victory. And I say, no. We operate from a position of confidence. Number two, before the battle, we assume a position of confidence. But during the battle, during the battle, advance from a position of certainty. Advance from a position of certainty. It's important that Joshua was certain that victory was going to be his. He not only had the confidence, but he had the, the faith to believe in God that as he made the advance, that God was going to give him the victory. Notice in verse 12, then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did it for six days. Notice they were extremely compliant. They rose early in the morning before the sun was even up and began to set course toward Jericho. How many of you are morning people? Raise your hand. Keep them high. Those of you who are not, just look at them and glare at them, okay? I know you want to do that. Uh, this is an early morning thing, before the sun even came up. And as they were advancing toward Jericho, the sun was rising. And to the dismay of those who were inside of the city of Jericho, they saw this incredible humanity marching around their city. It probably blew them away. They didn't know how to respond or react to it. They didn't return fire because no fire was given to them. And so they just watched these people watch, march around the city of Jericho. Now, they operated and they marched exactly how in this the Lord had told them. They had... First of all, they had the front guard. These were the warriors. Then they had the, the priests with their trumpets with ram horns, and they were continually blowing those. And behind that, you have the, the guys that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is symbolic of the presence of the Lord. And behind them, you had a rear guard to protect all of that that were also there. So you had this entourage that was marching, marching around the city. And they did that on the first day with horns continually blowing. And the people in Jericho were going, Okay, we don't understand that. They went back, no attack. Guys go back to camp, they think, well, nothing miraculous happened. We're told to do it 
another day, so we'll do it. And they got up before dawn, went down and did it again. Marched around the city in the same entourage. The horn's still blowing, nothing happened. They came back to camp, and yeah, just like yesterday, nothing miraculous happened. We got some more time, some more days to do it. Third day, they did the same thing. Fourth day, they did the same thing. Fifth day, they did the same thing. They came back probably on the fifth day and said, I knew nothing was going to happen. You probably think there was somebody in the group like that? They were Baptist. Somebody probably said, you know what the definition of insanity is? What? Do the same thing over and over again, expect different results. It's a fourth day now in a row. We've done the same thing. We ain't got no results. When are the results coming? They were consistent. Fifth day, they did the same thing. Went back to camp. I knew nothing was going to happen. Sixth day, they went out. I don't know why we're doing this, but they go out there and do it anyway. They blow the horns, come back. Maybe there's somebody in the group who said, well, six days in a row. We got to do this one more time. Thank the Lord, this is almost over. Just can't believe we're going to do it one more time. Except this time, we're going to go around seven times, and we're going to expect that something's going to happen miraculously. I'm not sure all of them felt like that, but Joshua surely believed that something was going to happen because he got him up early. He got him in line. Notice what the passage says. So on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city. It was only on that day. When was it? It was only on that day. On what day? The seventh day. Not the fourth day, not the fifth day, not the sixth day. That day, the seventh day. Why the seventh day? Because that was the day that the Lord said it would happen. On that day, on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, notice what he says, incredible, incredible conviction. Shout, shout, for the Lord, what, has given you the city. The Lord has given you the city. Incredible, incredible certainty that the city was going to be theirs. There was no doubt at all that the city would be theirs. You know, it kind of reminds me, I think, sometimes of the certainty that we need to have in Christ. Take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We need to have certainty that when we confront the obstacles, the barriers, the strongholds, the enemy, that the victory is going to be ours. Confidence is one thing. Certainty is the next step in advancing toward that which God wants us to have and possess in Christ. A certainty is a conviction, a certainty is an understanding, a certainty is a belief that God is going to do what God said he's going to do. And I'm advancing toward that obstacle, toward that barrier, toward the enemy, toward the thing that's holding me back and preventing me from the promise that I have in Christ and the provision that he already made possible through my faith in him, that I advance with his certainty. Notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Verse 4 for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power. They have divine power to do what? To demolish what? To demolish what? Strongholds. Are you certain that you have the power to demolish whatever stronghold is holding you back and preventing you from fulfilling and enjoying the promise found in Christ? You know, I have confidence that this thing could come down, but it's another thing to have the certainty to charge it and already before I get there know that as I get there to confront this, it's going to come toppling down. Why? I'm certain of it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. I don't have the strength. You don't need the strength. He has the strength. Put on the whole armor of God. He's provided all the weaponry you need, all the artillery you need, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, verse 14, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes of, of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you have extinguished all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. You know, you and I have all of the art artillery, all of the weaponry, all of the necessary things to operate with the certainty that when we advance forward, believing and trusting in God, that we have all that is necessary to see those strongholds to come down and to believe that the victory is already ours. So I ask you, why then do we continue to operate? in defeat instead of from victory. Number three, after we get ready for the battle and we assume a position of confidence, during the battle we advance from a position of certainty. But number three, notice that throughout the battle, we avoid a position of compromise. As the battle is going on, there's this tendency that we have to compromise, to settle for partial victory, not complete victory. Or in the, in the midst of of, of of, of confronting the enemy and in the midst of conflict with the enemy as we are advancing forward, believing and trusting God, that we either don't go all the way or we go partially and we stop and we settle and we, we, we don't go as fully and completely as God wants us to go. Notice what happens here in the text. Joshua again says to the people, this is a continuation of what he said before, shout to the Lord for he has given us this city. He continues to say to them, as, right before the walls come down, Notice he gives them a final instruction, and the city and all of it, all that is written in shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, least when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. The final instruction, he says, hey guys, I want you to be very, very careful. Be very, very careful as you go into the city. Be very, very careful that you fulfill exactly what God is asking us to do. This city, all of its inhabitants and all of the gold and the silver and all the things that are there, they belong to the Lord. We're not doing this for ourselves, we're doing it as unto the Lord, and we are to vote these things to the Lord. I want you to be clear now that the only one that is to survive is Rahab. Everyone else is to be wiped out, everyone else is to be killed, everyone else is to be eliminated. They are to be destroyed. Rahab is the only one who is to be the survivor, and all her company, all her and her household are to be the only, only survivors of this attack. I said, well, isn't that kind of cruel? 
Not really. Because you see, this is a part of, of, of what God intends for the people as they occupy the promised land. He doesn't want the influence of unbelievers, degenerate people, to mingle with those who are of the Lord. He knows the danger of mixing the two worlds. Jericho was a pagan, godless city. It chose to, to, to lock its doors and to, 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 to close its windows and to not follow the Lord. And consequently, because of that decision, they were to be annihilated. You say, well, so, well, how can a loving God do that? I've had people ask me that from time to time as a pastor. How can a loving God send people to an eternal hell? Just like the judgment on Jericho for a godless generation and civilization, so will be the judgment upon those who don't place their faith and trust in Christ. How can you say that? Well, I can say this because the Bible says that the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Eternal life is available. But only to those who place their faith and trust in Christ. A loving God does not send people to an eternal hell. People send themselves there because of their degeneracy, because of their sin. Because God is a just God and God must judge sin. And when those who are sinners stand before him on accountability day, they will be judged because of their sin and they will be cast into the lake of fire or into hell for all eternity. That is how God is just. But on the other side of that justice is that those of us who placed our faith and trust in Christ, not because of works that we have done, but because of works that he has done, and our faith in that redemptive work that he placed on the cross, we, because of God's justice, met the fulfillment, the total requirement of the law in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And now through our faith in him, we are redeemed, we are rescued, we are saved. That's the justice of God. He gives us an opportunity. But if we don't receive or if we reject the opportunity, then there's judgment. And the charges says, hey guys, what I want you to do here is I want you to make sure that all the loot that you get, it goes into the treasury of the Lord. It's going to be huge because we're going to see in, in, in a Sunday or two how, how they go into a little city called Ai. And, and, and there's a guy there. He sees something. He says, man, that looks cool. And he puts it in his pocket. And he runs home and he hides it in his home. And there are incredible consequences when that happens. Why is that? Because you see, judgment must also begin in the house of God. And he tells the people of God, he says to them as they're going into the city, you're going to be my judgment tool upon Jericho, but let me tell you something. If you violate any of my commands, I will discipline you. I will discipline you. You see, I think sometimes there's some of us who think that we have a special dispensation with God and that we can live our lives any way we choose, sort of live our lives in both worlds. We know that there's sin in our lives, but yet we do nothing about it because really God doesn't care. We have a special dispensation with him. He's just going to overlook our sin. And he doesn't because he tells Israel right here, for if you take what doesn't belong to you, well, you take what belongs to me and you take it and you use it for yourself and for your own good and for your own, you're going to receive judgment. I will discipline you as I am disciplining Jericho. So lest we be confused there's a standard of which we will stand before God and be given account of our lives as well for what he's entrusted to us. And here we have this, in, this, this incredible 
instruction that Joshua gives the people just before they go into Jericho. And notice now what happens in the forward motion as they proceed. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall came down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The sound of the trumpets, the shout of the voices, and the siege of the city took place in one final swoop. Now we look down at verse 21, and then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with a hedge of the sword. There was a, a faithful action that they took place right at the very conclusion of the deal in which they did exactly what God had told them to do. They destroyed the city and dedicated the pillage to God. No, how does this relate to us? Well, I think sometimes you and I, if we're not careful, as we already addressed, we sometimes have a tendency to compromise. Take a look at the passage in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I know most of you already know it by memory probably. Let's go ahead and leave that up. If you will, WR, that's fine. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, what? Every weight, every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We must, as it says in this passage, must be willing to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles or so closely hinders us so that we can run with endurance. We must never compromise and try to live in two worlds. They always collide. They cannot coexist. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that is good and acceptable and perfect. We must always use discernment to know what is of the world and what is of the Spirit, what's of God and what is not of God. We should never find a place in which we compromise our convictions and our faith in the Lord, especially our faith in Christ. Should we go on sinning so that grace can abound? By no means. And yet we find sometimes in dealing with the enemy, as we are facing him, trying to demolish and to bring down the strongholds in our lives, we'd rather compromise than fight. Conflict is unavoidable. I know some of you laughed at my last series that we did not too long ago about the series on conflict. People said, well, I had somebody the other day say, well, you must like conflict. I hate conflict. And I'm not afraid of it. And if you're a believer in Christ, there's a conflict going on right now. And that conflict, there is no room for compromise. Lastly, notice that throughout the battle, after we avoid the position of compromise, we need to, after the battle, adopt a position of completion. Adopt a position of completion. I think the word is wrong up there. It says compliance. But I want to use the word completion instead of compliance. I changed it this morning. I have time to change the screen. Completion. You see, there's a, a race that we're running. There's a course that we're on. There's a work that we're doing. And we are to give it our best until we have fulfilled all of the instructions of the Lord. 
We can't stop midstream. We can't fight for a little while and then sit down and say, well, I'm tired and rest. We can't say, well, I fought my battles long and hard and now I'm in retirement mode. There is no retirement when it comes to God's army. I don't care if you're 85 years old in here. If you still have life and breath, you're still in the army of the Lord. And there's still a battle that goes on. There is no retirement. The only retirement plan that God has is when you breathe your last breath and they have your funeral right here and we put your body in, a, in, in the ground and, and you ascend to the heaven to be with the Lord. Until then, you are a part of the Lord's army. Notice what happens in the text. It says here in verse 24, And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasure of the house of the Lord. They destroyed all that was told to destroy, to destroy, and they dedicated everything to the Lord, the treasury that he said that they should. Now verse 25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. We also know that she had faith in Jehovah. And so she was delivered from the destruction of Jericho. And she was the only, her and her family, the only surviving family. Why? Not just because she hid the two spies, but because she put her faith and trust in Jehovah. And then lastly, if you take a look at the text, verse 46, and Joshua laid an, said an oath, laid an oath on them at that time. He laid an oath on them. He said an oath before the people. It was an oath that they were responsible for keeping. He said, curse before the Lord be the man who raises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay his, its foundation, and the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its greatest, gatest, its gates, I'm sorry. And so the Lord was Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. It's interesting how determined they were that Joshua would never be rebuilt to the fashion in which they destroyed it. They were not going to allow Jericho to ever return back to the same fashion and the same culture that it enjoyed before the fall. That was their determination. And we must also be determined to not allow the influences of darkness to cause us to compromise in our conviction and our faith in Christ. Turn to 2 Timothy 4, 7 real quick. And also turn to Philippians 3, 12. I'm going to read these last verses and we'll close. What's the position of completion for the believer? 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I thought that he was at the end of his life. He was able to say, hey, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. To the very end, to the very end, he was to be faithful to the Lord in all of his instructions to fulfill all of his will. Notice in Philippians 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What was his desire? To press on. To press on. To complete the course. To finish the race. 
to finalize the battle. And until it was over, until he was called home, he was going to continue to fight the good fight and to run the good race and to do the work that God had called him to do. When is your retirement day? Death. Or when one of these days the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and it will be forever with the Lord. Let's complete what we've been called to do. I know, I had a guy just the other day, we got to talking, he said, you know, I'm, I'm weary, <laughs> I'm tired. He was a young guy, uh, <laughs> old enough to be one of my sons. I said, dude, you're tired? I've been doing this a lot longer than you have. Now, well, when is it over? Good question. It's not over until I die or until the Lord returns. And until then, there's battle after battle after battle after battle. But guess what? There's victory after victory after victory after victory. And you are either in a battle today or you have just come out of a battle or you're going into one. That's good news today. So that sounds like good news. There's battles. You've either just come out of one, you're presently in one, or you're headed toward one. And these battles will continue to go on until when? Why? Because we've not accomplished, nor have we fulfilled, nor are we enjoying the fullness of the promises of God in our individual lives or in our corporate lives. Strongholds. They exist in your life, don't they? They exist in individual lives. They do. Which one's yours? You know what? They exist in the body of Christ too. Because I'm convinced that the churches are much like individuals. Each church that I've been in over the years has a distinct personality. And each church has a stronghold or multiple strongholds that are preventing it from going on in the Lord and accomplishing and fulfilling all that God has promised and decided that needed to be done in that church. I think it's for that reason that 80 plus percent of churches are either plateaued or declining today. It's because of strongholds. The enemy has had a field day in their lives far too long and it's crippling them and robbing them the fullness that God intended for that body. It's possible for churches and it's possible for individuals. And I say, I hope you'll say the same thing. Be done with the strongholds. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And we're going to advance with confidence. We're going to be certain of victory. We are not going to compromise and negotiate. And we are going to see it all the way through until our task is complete. And until he calls us home, or until he returns, we will continue to fight the good fight. We will run the race that God has set before us. And we will not be moved. Why? Because we operate from victory, not defeat. Are you operating from victory? Are you operating in defeat? If you're in Christ, you're more than a conqueror already. It's time to enjoy the ride, don't you think? The ride to victory. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. 
Manual is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Each Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service and a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m. and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. Lord, your